Hello and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe Podcast. Friends, today I'm going to try really hard to get through this episode without a coughing fit. We're talking about the Ahsoka novel, uh, a wonderful book that dives deep into Ahsoka, and for reasons that, oh, I don't know, people might be really interested in some more background on her character right about now. Um, <coughs> but a uh, quick announcement that I want to make. As you hear, I still have a bad cough. This COVID, maybe a cold, who knows what the heck is going on, has been kicking my butt. And with the writer strike now over, but the actor strike still going on, there's a lot of things we're trying to figure out right now here in the uh, secret headquarters deep beneath the ethical panda mountain. Um, but one of the things is that we're going to maybe make some changes with Star Wars Universe podcast. Um, we have some great people who've been kind of regulars on here who I'm talking to about bringing on as regular guests or co-hosts. We're talking about trying to look at how we can look at some of the content with new eyes as well as my old foginess still kind of getting a chance to shine through. But also just give my voice a rest for a couple of weeks while we figure all this out. So uh, we're going to go on a bit of a hiatus. I'm asking you, please don't unsubscribe. Please stay subscribed. We will be getting back to great content, hopefully once the writer strike ends. But uh, even if it does not, we will be getting back soon. There's a lot more books and stuff we want to talk about. Uh, as has been pointed out to me more and more, the a lot of the animated content under Star Wars is not covered by SAG-AFTRA, and SAG is specifically given the blessing for people to, to talk about that stuff. So we're going to finally, finally finish Rebels. We're going to take a new look at some of the um, older animation, knowing all the things that we know now, and <coughs> just have a lot of fun with it. So uh, I'm not saying like there's going to be no episodes. It'll probably be like, look, when I'm feeling good, we've got a good topic, we're going to record an episode, we'll get it out, but it's not going to be on the regular schedule. Hopefully just for a couple of weeks, maybe for a month or two, but I promise we'll be coming back. Please don't unsubscribe. Please stick around. But meanwhile, we do have a great episode for you today because myself and Aaron McGowan are talking about Ahsoka the Novel by one of my favorite, favorite uh, Star Wars novelists, E.K. Johnson. So, Aaron, um, how are we doing today and uh, how are you feeling about this book? I'm doing pretty good. I'm just chilling. It's a Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a Sunday. It is a Sunday. Um, and you're, you're exactly the person I wanted to get on for this. And I think by now, a lot of folks may have heard you, but you know, folks may be tuning in for the first time. As I said, I, I have a hunch that the word Ahsoka is showing up in a lot of search engines right now, as people have uh, finished a certain piece of media and are wanting or hungry for more. So for those who haven't heard about you, talk a little bit about your background with Ahsoka. Yeah, so I... Let's see, I was very young when the Clone Wars movie came out, and so I identified heavily with Ahsoka from the beginning, and mm -hmm. I really felt like as the TV show came out, I really grew up with her, even down to uh, in 2020 when the seventh season was released, I was a senior in high school, so I was about 17 or 18, which is the age she is um, during mm -hmm. Order 66, so that was kind of crazy for me. Um, but yeah, I've always just had a love for this character, felt really heard and seen by her and the performance that Ashley Eckstein gives. So I also cosplay her. That's kind of right. how I got connected to the podcast is through my cosplaying. So yeah, I'm just all about Ahsoka. I love everything about her. And I just want to talk about her forever. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and it's so great to have that perspective. Um, <clears throat> as I've joked before, I'm a little bit older. Uh, I no longer reach for my cane and my AARP card when you mention <laughs> your age, but <clears throat> it's, 
It's funny because I think in many ways I am lucky that I didn't watch the Clone Wars TV show when it was coming out because especially the first couple of seasons, there is some absolute brilliance in there. There's some rough bits. And Ahsoka is a character who I think in animation took a little while for people to find, especially for adults. And I have learned so much hearing about your own perspective and how you related to the character and and getting to see her grow up as we're now seeing her in all these different facets. And I think this is a period of time what the book covers that we have very little information about. We now have the Tales of the Jedi, which covers it a little bit. And in our bonus section, we're going to talk about how that doesn't quite line up with some of the stuff in the book. But this idea of what happened... So if you've seen the Clone Wars, you know that Ahsoka was... And spoilers for Clone Wars and Rebels... If you've seen the Clone Wars, you know that she was this child soldier. She fought alongside Anakin. She was uh, deeply influenced by Anakin, but often sort of like kind of felt torn between him and the council and was kind of both the like master, we shouldn't be going this far, but also like Anakin says we should do it. So I think we should do it. Not in a kind of like slavish way, but not in a kind of like not thinking for herself way, but really kind of like seeing both sides. And at the end of that show, she has walked away from the Jedi. She's had this traumatic experience where they didn't believe her at first. They thought she was a a terrorist. She's now had this experience on Mandalore where she helped to rescue the people of Mandalore, fought a battle against uh, Darth Maul, and then had all of her clones turn on her in Order 66, except Rex. Great long story. And then many years later about 15 or so in the, the, the world, more like 16 or 17, she all of a sudden shows up in Rebels as this adult figure now who is there to be kind of a guide somewhat to Kanan and Ezra in the Force. But more than anything, she's Fulcrum. She's the person who is uh, a spy and is getting information to these new resistance groups and is helping them to figure things out and then eventually going on her own journey of figuring out that Anakin is Darth Vader. And we've never really explored what happens between those two. How does she get from one point to the other? And I think what I love about this book so much, because we're talking about Ahsoka, the novel, uh, is that journey she goes on. Totally. Yeah, I really liked having a little insight into what's going on and what changed. Because when we see her leave the Clone Wars, she seems to be very kind of I wash my hands of this, like, Mm -hmm. this was my entire childhood, and now it's crumpled, and I'm going for a complete new start. She didn't really run off from the starship or the cruiser crash where all the clones died. She wasn't like, okay, let's go figure out what's happening, why'd the clones turn, blah, blah, blah. It was just her and Rex, as we later learned in Tales of the Jedi, they attend Padme Amidala's funeral and then they part ways. Right. And so I was always very curious, like, what changed and what happened in between that and Rebels that she does become this, like, organizer for the Rebellion. And mm-hmm. she kind of is in charge of finding these missions for other Rebel cells to complete. Right. Yeah, it's a really powerful journey. And I think that's, to be clear, I mean, that is exactly what the book is about. The book is, all the stuff that we're talking about here is referenced in the book. She talks about 
her experience at the end of Clone Wars and the, the act of burying her lightsabers and, and burying herself and <clears throat> the journey she's been on and how she feels about the Jedi and how she feels about Anakin. And really what this book is about is not a trope, but it's, it's a fairly classic hero story of the hero who's tried to retire. You know, the person who said, as you were kind of saying, this is no longer about me. This is no longer my fight. This is no longer. And she starts the book really just wanting to hide and to find a place where she can lay low and kind of let the galaxy move on without her. And in so doing, she keeps finding situations where um, she finds and, – and, and this is going to be kind of a plot summary a bit. But in many ways, the plot of the book is is fairly basic. It's just all the – the storytelling and the character work that happens along the way, she keeps finding herself in situations of people who need help. Um, she goes to one planet and kind of befriends a, a family of smugglers, the youngest daughter of which is force sensitive. And so she kind of becomes aware of the need to help her hide because this is obviously during the time of Order 66 and afterwards. Um, and she becomes, especially when she becomes aware of the Inquisitors. And so she wants to help those children. Um, <coughs> which, if you remember in Rebels, is some of the first times that Fulcrum gets involved, is helping our Rebels heroes uh, rescue uh, Force-sensitive infants so they're not captured yeah. by the Inquisitors and all that. <coughs> um, she also, she goes to other places and finds a planet that's kind of way out in the middle of nowhere, but that the Empire is starting already to exploit and to hurt the farmers and basically with like destroying subsistence farming and, and, and you know, doing things that kind of happen in our own world where like the local farmers are getting screwed by, by the big corporation, uh, which is the Empire in this case. And she helped they, – they want to rebel and they want to fight back and they have really stupid ideas of how to do it. And she finds ways to help that. And basically over the course of the book, she has a series of adventures that are all about her – you know, you've seen it in a million MCU or DC things or, or stories going back centuries, you know, coming to realize that she's not going to be happy in a world where these terrible things are happening and she could get involved, but she doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so she she gets more and more involved. And Bail Organa, who is, again, another character we haven't really seen much of. Um, we've seen more of since the book was written. This is, I think, the first of the Disney canon novels, or at least it was one of the earliest. So it's from back in like 2016 or so. So a lot of the newer content comes after. But Bail Organa is the first one to kind of put together, hey, wait a minute, there's a bunch of like miracles kind of happening where like people get into trouble and someone rescues them in ways that they kind of shouldn't be able to or do-gooders. And he recognizes that it's a Jedi, but he doesn't really know who. And so by the by the time the book ends, the two of them have come into contact with each other he kind of convinces her to come out of retirement to start helping. And she says with the caveat that one of their first missions be to help protect these kids who were being threatened by the, by the empire and the, and the brothers. And, and he, and that's how she gets the name Fulcrum. Uh, and the last kind of big plot thing that I think is worth mentioning is that, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the individual characters because they come very important, but is that <coughs> she has given up her lightsabers. And in the course of this, she winds up fighting and defeating a uh, Inquisitor, the sixth brother, who, by the way, is mentioned a little bit in Rise of the Red Blade, which we talked about in an episode a couple of weeks ago. And in so doing, we learn more about something that's referenced a lot, which is that what makes red lightsabers red is that the, the, the kyber crystal 
that powered originally a Jedi's uh, blade was re- was um, uh, corrupted, and so it has become red. But then later, a Jedi can kind of turn it back and 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 uncorrupt it, at which point it becomes pure white. And the sixth brother had a uh, you know one of the two handed uh, one of the two double bladed spinning kind of things that we've seen in Rebels a lot. So it had two crystals, and so she uses those to make what become then her famous white lightsabers. So it's it's really kind of a great book that it, it does some of that kind of fan servicey like here's how this thing happened but in a way that feels incredibly organic to the story mm-hmm. and yeah overall i really loved it yeah i really wasn't sure how it was gonna go you know i didn't read it until very recently even though it came out a few years ago like you mentioned and mm-hmm. so I had heard amazing things from everyone. You know, they're talking about, oh, this book is so good. Like, you learn about her lightsabers. Like, you learn how she became involved with the rebellion. Like, you've got to read it, blah, blah, blah. And, like, even some cosplayers that I follow have um, cosplays of the version of Ahsoka that's on the cover, which Mm -hmm. is really cool. Uh, So I knew that it was a very well-loved piece of media, which is always kind of scary going into because it ha- yeah. you have all these expectations and it's like okay well i really want to enjoy this and experience it for what it is without becoming disappointed by all the expectations and hype around it so i'd been a little nervous to read it i'd say actually i bought it oh probably about a year ago and i didn't start reading it till a month or so ago but i really enjoyed it i liked Just the build of the story, you know, like you said, we started with that smuggler family and she's kind of minding her business, working for them as a pilot. And Mm -hmm. then she starts to almost like feel this inquisitor and realizes, you know, she has to leave. There's a dark feeling. It's not safe for the others to be here anymore, for her to be there anymore. And right. so she moves on, and she finds this small farming moon of Rada, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, R-A-A-D-A, so I think that's how you pronounce it, yeah. Yeah, and so she moves in there kind of with this uh, reinforced effort of not wanting to form any connections, especially mm-hmm. after what happened on the other planet where there was an incident where all the children could have died. And right. it is Ahsoka who saves them, correct? Yeah, it is Ahsoka. And like, if you've played that, uh, like I said, it, it's kind of a very familiar story, both <clears throat> with people who have kind of superpowers in general, but even in the Star Wars world, if you've played the first game of the Jedi Fallen Order series, uh, this is, you know, you remember that, spoilers for that game, um, you know, Cal uses the Force to rescue some of his fellow workers, and that's, again, how he gets noticed. Mm-hmm. It, it's that same kind of a story of she doesn't want to show her Force powers to people until she has to to save people. Yeah. And then, you know, some of the children notice, and that's why she realizes it's time to go. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she goes to Rada. And kind of settles in. She finds an abandoned home to make her living space. It's very simple. You know, some walls, a table, and a bed. And she Mm -hmm. ends up meeting this local named Caden. Right. And Caden is kind of very outgoing, very excited. Like, hey, new neighbor. (laughs) And Ahsoka is very, I'm not going to tell you my name. I'm not going to tell you why I'm here, what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. or where I came from. But, you know... 
hi. Right. If you can get me work, <laughs> I'll keep you around, I guess. <laughs> right. And so it kind of is discovered that her uh, mechanic skills that she learned, um, mostly through Anakin, are going to be quite helpful on this planet as it's a farming planet and they have a lot of equipment and tools that are pretty old. It's a poor planet. And so these things are old. They've been fixed up a few times. And so they definitely need a mechanic to fix things as they break because that's what old equipment mm -hmm. does. And so she kind of finds this niche where she's needed. She meets some other of the villagers, including Caden's younger sister is her name. Mira? Mm -hmm. uh, Mira, yeah, I believe that's how it's pronounced. Yeah, so she kind of becomes friends with Caden's work group as well as this Togruta. His name's Selda, and he owns the mm -hmm. local cantina. And those kind of become her friends. And Selda is this very interesting kind of wise soul. And he has, I believe it was prosthetic Leku mm -hmm. and a prosthetic arm, perhaps, um, where he had been in some sort of an accident. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember reading about that and thinking about, you know, for me, obviously, as someone who has a prosthetic leg myself, I'm always very aware of the way those things are talked about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually just recently did an episode with uh, AK Maiden on disability in science fiction in general, but also in Star Wars. And we talked about how, like, you know, when Anakin, when Luke, when when they get their prosthetic arms, it's just like, oh, it's like five minutes of surgery and then everything is just back to normal. Yep. And <clears throat> which, you know, as someone who has a prosthetic leg, like, sometimes I walk and it, it's as though everything is the same and a lot of time it's not. And um, I, I, just, I really appreciated the way it was handled with that character. Like, it wasn't a big deal, but just the the way that they were a little bit noticeable but also like that there were just some some acknowledgement from the character himself about how yes these were replacements and it was close but it wasn't quite the same mm -hmm. um as well as making it about yeah like like you know i've i've seen you do all this stuff about uh creating the leku you know for your cosplay but i think we don't really think about them as like physical parts of the body that might need to be replaced you know yeah. i think like an actual a lot of organ us, yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people see them as just kind of decorative. And it's like, well, if it's cut off, that sucks. But why would you replace it? And the prosthetic being like, no, no, it's it's a part of his body that, that would need to be replaced as much as like Anakin's hand or, or my leg. Yeah, because I mean, just some Leku information here. Uh, Togrutas do not have ears. And so they actually, their Leku and Montrals are hollow. And they use kind mm. of a form of echolocation to hear things. Oh, Additionally, no awesome. the actual Leku themselves are kind of like a sensory organ. Mm -hmm. They're very, like, sensitive and aware of things. I mean, take that as you will. Um, but yeah, just some info there. A lot of people are kind of like, yeah, what are they for? Like, it's hair, right? No, it's not hair. It's actually yeah. their form of hearing. Exactly. And I said, by the way, it needs to be replaced. Obviously, there are people who have amputations who do not... It, I, but just in that same kind of like if the same way you'd want a hand replaced, many people would want it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's just one. More, the, there's just so much wonderful background characters in this. Like E.K. Johnson does this a lot. I think she 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 wrote the Queen's Shadow books, and I'm always raving about. She creates great characters and great story, but there's also just so much world building. Um, and I, I kind of want to let you finish her story, but this is just a perfect time to interject this. You know, she, she'll give you these characters or these little moments that just fill in the world so well. So, for example, 
one of the things that's happening is that it's it's just the imperial bureaucracy that's come to this planet of Rada with a plan because part of it is that they have all these new soldiers now. They're phasing out the clones. They're phasing in the stormtroopers. They need to feed everybody. Mm-hmm. So they need to just do this effic- super efficiently. And then there's a character named Jenneth Pilar who's – he's basically an accountant. He's the one who has figured out this plan of we can do this and this and if we have this many soldiers and they shoot this many people, everything will be efficient. you know. And he's kind of the definition of – he's not mwahaha power, immoral. He's just amoral. He sees there's a goal to help the empire and if individual people get screwed, he doesn't care. But then what happens is that once Ahsoka gets found out and uh, some of the Inquisitors start coming to look for Ahsoka, uh, this is his description. Jenneth Pilar was packing. There was no rhyme or reason to the Empire once Force wielders got involved. Every one of his painstaking calculations were ignored and all of his formulas were unbalanced by the very presence of such mythology. And he had no more patience for it. The one who called himself the Sixth Brother was back, and that meant that all Jenneth's well-planned methodologies were about to be jettisoned in favor of some scheme involving a so-called Jedi. Everyone knew the Jedi were dead. So far from the core, there were few people who had any faith in the Jedi Order at all. Jenneth didn't admire much about the Outer Rim, but he could respect that. The Force had no place in an ordered galaxy. It simply couldn't be accounted for in the math. Mm-hmm. And I just love, like, on a lot of other things, we've talked about how during this period, there's this, like, tension between the militarists, the bureaucrats, and, and the Emperor and Vader and the Force people. And I just, the idea that the Force can't be, Force can't be accounted to in the math is just such a great, funny line. Mm-hmm. But also just with that two-paragraph, and a character who I think maybe has, like, five pages he appears on. Yeah. But just really tells you so much more about what's happening with the Empire right now in this clash between the bureaucracy and the Force users. Yeah, that was definitely some interesting and good insight. Mm-hmm. How, like you said, I mean, he's just amoral. He just has, has a job he sees need to be that needs to be done. He yep. has an efficient way to do it. He doesn't care if the certain plant that's going to feed the most people and grow the fastest will completely leach all resources from the ground and the moon will be useless after a few crops. Right. He doesn't care. He's just like, this is how the army needs to function this is what we need to make it an effective empire and then like you said as soon as the hokey religion stuff as han solo would Mm -hmm. say gets involved um he becomes very upset and just annoyed because he has put so much work and effort into this just to have someone that like you said is kind of of this unknown uncalculatable um kind of community like something you can't account for or prepare for shows up and really just throws a wrench into his plans and him as like a very logically minded person is not excited he's upset (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so it's just one more kind of fun detail but i interrupted you were kind of on a great flow of going through some of the important stuff in the book so feel free to continue that my apologies oh boy let's see did i have a flow (laughs) well Um, I'll, i'll i can take it in direction if you want me to I mean, yeah, it was just, uh, she gets to the planet, she meets some people, then the Empire shows up, like you said, they start mm-hmm. overworking the citizens, and so, you know, the people of Rada start kind of grumbling, considering ways to fight back. They start um, being really slow about their work and putting in a lot of effort to not get their gear fixed and mm-hmm. take long breaks or just all these things to kind of slow the empire down and the empire starts to notice. So then instead they just lessen rations and increase work hours. Right. 
Yeah, it's interesting, too, because compare this world to one like Andor. And this is very early on in the Empire. because And Andor, obviously, is taking place 15 years after this. And on a world that I think is meant to be, I mean, that's still kind of a backwater world, but much more populated and much more central to things. Because there, they're, you know, it's it's not the Empire. It's this, like, bureaucratic group that the Empire kind of subcontracts with. And mm-hmm. they're, like, trying to put up the veneer of things. Here, it's not that at all. It's very clear. They're like, no, no, you have no rights. You're not like, there's no jobs you can quit. You're just basically enslaved workers here. And, you know, to the extent that that's because this is the empire at the very start, and they only kind of later realize maybe you shouldn't look like total jerks while trying to (laughs) convince people to like us, or maybe it's because this world is just so far out and no one cares, is not clear. But it's just kind of fun to see like this very different way of handling things. Yeah, I think... My impression was a little more of the second option, as in it's so far out, and mm-hmm. also it's not even a world. It's not even a planet. It's literally a moon. Right. Like, they see it as something so small and insignificant, and they say in the book many times, so many of these residents have never even left that moon, which yeah. seems like a foreign idea to us who watch and read, like, popular Star Wars media, because all of the characters, you know, see multiple planets, they're traveling through the galaxy, mm-hmm. through hyperspace, And it was just very interesting to read a story and learn about all these people in depth who have not had those experiences. And yet they are still these complex people with lots of thoughts and feelings about the world. Or the galaxy, I guess you would say. Um, But their actual lives are very, it's almost like a very small window of view. Because all they Mm -hmm. know is this planet. They've never even been off the planet or gotten on like these big ships. And so then... Towards the end of the book, when they do end up staging some sort of an escape, it's very, it's kind of a big moment for these people to just, like, have been living on their moon happily and then to be slowly turned into indentured or enslaved um, people and then have this desperate escape where you don't have the time to think about, this is the only place I've ever known I've ever lived, like, this is where my family is. Mm -hmm. They just have to go. And it's interesting, we actually see a character make this choice much earlier in the book. I don't remember her name, but she's uh, part of the work group, and she's the only one who has a family. Like, she's got kids, and she's got a husband. Well, I don't remember if it's stated that it's a husband or just a partner. Mm -hmm. But shortly after the Empire comes, her and her family escape Rada on some supply ship just because they can see it's going bad, and this is not a safe place to have a family. And the rest of the people, even Caden... They kind of stick it out. Caden's like, this is my home. This is the only place I've ever known. You know, this is where my parents, like, brought us. Yeah. And Caden is a lot more resistant to the idea of just fleeing and abandoning the moon. And we see her point of view and the point of view of many of these villagers just change as things get worse and worse. Yeah. Well, especially because, and I think this is an important part of Ahsoka's journey, at first they somewhat blame her. Not not for the Empire itself, but because as, as bad as the Empire might be, and, and by the time all this happens, like Ahsoka, they have fought back and really screwed it up. And so they've gone off to these caves that Ahsoka had really kind of helped set up for them. But then, and, and the extent to which the Empire like wants to find them, but isn't doing too much because they're workers. You don't want to kill your workers. They're, yeah. they're resources. Again, there's no morality to it. It's just, you know, you don't destroy your own factory parts. Um. And again, which is that perspective, I'm not endorsing in the slightest. 
And then the sixth brother comes, and the sixth brother is like, well, again, this is why the accountant got annoyed. He doesn't care about them as workers. He only cares about them of, oh, if I make them suffer, will it draw out Ahsoka? Yeah. And so some of them are kind of mad at Ahsoka because they're like, you brought this on to us in that way. And and a lot of that is – Still about, uh, you know, them them projecting and then being so scared and so upset about the situation and, and like blaming Ahsoka isn't really accurate and they and they acknowledge that. But I think by the end of the book, there is to some extent Ahsoka has still realized like, you know, her initial idea of I want to be alone, she is still going to hold to. And if you remember it by the beginning when she starts to interact in Rebels, Fulcrum is so secretive and so set apart mm-hmm. And then even then, like when the Rebels crew was like, hang out with us. She's like, no, no, I can't do that. I think this book really helps to set that up because part of what this book shows us is that she does, she shows that she can't hide from the war, but as she becomes a part of a community, she's putting that entire community at risk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even if it's not her authentic self joining this community, she kind of goes in with this Mm. idea of, oh, I can go by the name Ashla. I can tell them nothing about my past. I can be a mechanic. You know, this should be like a safe thing. I'm in the middle of nowhere. But like we've said before, you know, the force is something that can't be accounted or planned for. And so when you're Mm -hmm. a being that's connected to this kind of otherworldly spiritual realm that other beings can sense you through, there is no way. To mm-hmm. fully unplug and hide. And it's a very painful lesson that she learns um, yeah. throughout this book. Yeah. And like you're saying, it really just steals her within that resolve by the end of the book. And she just continues that way. Very much so. Very much so. And I think that's um, – yeah, I don't want to say that because about the new show. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a part of a story that continues to go unresolved throughout Rebels. And so mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what other stuff takes it. I want to talk a bit about the character of Caden for a minute mm-hmm. because Caden's a very important character, I think, for a number of reasons. Um, as you said, she's very inventive. She's very thoughtful. Um, we see her get tortured in these horrible ways. And, you know, I think one of the things of a lot of times, you know, heroes will always say like, oh, no matter how much they torture me, I'm never going to give up the information. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where most of the torture isn't on screen. It's not gratuitous in that kind of a way. But, like, we spend a lot of time with her immediately after and immediately – both, like, in the before when they're threatening and then immediately after when she's suffering. And she admits. She's like, I don't think I'm strong enough to not reveal the information if I'm tortured again. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when it's not that she's going to be tortured. It's that she's being forced to listen to her sister be tortured and other people she loved being tortured. And – I really appreciate her as a character because she's not the perfect Jedi. She's not the all-suffering. She's in this place of – like even then, I think, you know, if some at the very beginning of the book if, when she's rebelling against the Empire, if someone had said, hey, do you want to come to Lothal and fight the Empire in Lothal? She'd be like, what do I care about Lothal? You know, she she cares about what's happening on to her people. And a lot of the book is about her own journey in that regard mm-hmm. and that – uh, in later comics, and I think in books it's referenced, but definitely in some of the later comics, it, it, it is revealed that she goes on to become a resistance fighter and to do a lot of other things. And it's a really wonderful, like, Ahsoka has some influence on her, but it's also a story of her own radicalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It is because, yeah, like I said, at first she's very family-oriented, very much like this is... 
my planet. Like, this is my sister to take care of. Also, I looked it up. Her sister's name is Miara, I think. It's Miara, thank you. I-A-R-A. Okay, Um, thank you, yeah. But yeah, and Caden really has this sense and duty of like, this is my home. I'm here to protect it. And I'm here to protect my sister. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is a very interesting story of her radicalization through suffering. Because right. it doesn't even have to do really with Ahsoka. Ahsoka gives her the opportunity to act out that radicalization towards the end of the book by offering, you know, training. But she comes to that realization herself through seeing her friends and sister like suffering in the fields and then being captured multiple times and tortured Mm -hmm. really just like pushes her to that realization of you can't hide from this so you might as well do something about it right well and also that i think you know she's not one of the she's one of the leaders but she's not the person who's very who's the absolute leader of you know because at first ahsoka says let me go do this on my own and they all decide to attack anyway and Mm -hmm. it's an utter disaster (laughs) and i think that also is a big part of what what she learns from all this, you know, is that we it, it can't just be we're angry, so let's go attack right now, mm-hmm. that you have to be strategic because you're, yeah, when it's just a bunch of a couple of you with, you know, old rifles or whatever and the Empire with all of its power, that's not going to work. Yeah. Now, some of you are screaming at your podcast devices, so let's talk about the other very important part of uh, Kim's <laughs> character, particularly in terms of the evolution of Star Wars and Star Wars writing. Uh, she's explicitly queer. Um, it's, it's revealed by the end of the book and it's definitely been hinted and coded until then. It's not a huge surprise if you know what to look for, but she expresses that her feelings for Ahsoka are romantic, that she has romantic feelings for Ahsoka. Mm -hmm. And, um, Ahsoka in a very nice way, like, um, and E.K. Johnson, the author, like there's an awful lot of queer, she goes on to put, you know, the, the Queen's Shadow books that I've mentioned have trans characters and explicit queer romances. And like, I mean, she's and you get the sense that like this because this is the first of the Disney books, it was kind of testing the waters a little bit. Yeah. It's a lot more subtle, but still, I remember it being a huge thing in terms of Star Wars publishing. To this point, certainly we'd never seen anything queer on the main screens of all the Star Wars stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I just I I really loved that part of her character, and I loved that it was done in a way where Ahsoka clearly can't reciprocate, but. It is never in any way said that it's because of Caden's gender. Yeah. That it, it's just because, like, she's a Jedi or she, you know, she's this Force user. She is doing all these things. She has to be alone. It, it's not at all about, yeah. well, no, 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 I'm, I'm into Lux Benary. I'm not into you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is – it's something very interesting for me because – like you're saying, it's very new in Star Wars media. And now we have the High Republic books where there are lots of explicitly queer relationships. There's mm-hmm. plenty of, you know, two women together. There's plenty of people with – it's just two husbands and they're very powerful people. And mm-hmm. it's never even commented on or mentioned. It's just casually brought up, you know, let me go ask my husband about this and I'll get back to you. And I will be honest – for me, I'm quite young, and I was raised um, pretty, like, Christian conservative. And so queerness is not something I've always known or been comfortable with. Now, at this point in my life, I have a lot of queer friends. I consider myself also to be queer. But um, 
having a character that was so deeply ingrained in my like emotions at such a young age where something like that was not something I was comfortable with or open mm-hmm. to having that character have an experience like that was very odd for me. I felt when, cause another reason why I didn't read the book for a while mm-hmm. is because of my own like ingrained homophobia to an extent, because I had heard mm-hmm. not a very big part of it, but I had heard, you know, there's some sort of a romance and I was just kind of like, I don't, like that for Ahsoka that doesn't feel on brand it doesn't feel like something I want and even though I probably wasn't or even though yeah I didn't admit it to myself and I was trying to focus on that it was romance probably some of what had to do with it is that it's a romance from another like female presenting character yeah and so it was very odd for me to like experience a character that I had grown to understand and love in a very like 2d focused way uh-huh. and have a more expanded like version of that and, you know i read the book and i loved it like you said it was beautifully done and it wasn't at all about ahsoka or her own sexuality it was very much about Caden, and yeah. ahsoka was very understanding and open but like you said you know not really interested or mm-hmm. entertaining the idea and so i think it right. was very beautifully done and it was something i was a little wary and nervous about going into but looking back, it was quite silly <laughs> yeah. to be so nervous about. But yeah, that was definitely a plot point that I wasn't sure how I would feel about it, but came together really nicely. No, I can totally see that. I think there's something really beautiful about that because I feel like, you know, as someone who has been, I don't want to say comfortable in my queerness because I think a big part of being bisexual was the imposter syndrome. It's basically part of the identity for many of us. Um, but like... As someone who got introduced to very positive understandings of, uh, we didn't even use the word queer very often back then, but like you know, gay and lesbianness, and then LGBTness when I when I was fairly young, um, and and then discovering it myself, like I have always taken that kind of thing very comfortably, and I think it's easy to forget that there are stories that I might read that I'll feel like, oh yeah, this is just kind of integrating it, you know, very smoothly. That to someone who yeah, is coming from a very different perspective, especially a perspective where you've been taught it's wrong all your life, it is going to feel like hitting you over the head with it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like uh, – have you read the Queen's Shadow books? I've not, no. They're wonderful. I will get you to read them one day. Um, but they're much more out there. They're Like they're – on page one, there's characters with neo-pronouns and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And I think to someone who is coming from a much more, you know, kind of – been taught you know homophobia and the like that probably is going to be putting them off and i think it's it's a testament to this great book and to kind of where it falls in the publishing order of like yeah if this was going to be the first introduction to this this is a really great way of doing it of saying like look this is a star wars book it's not going to be all the things that you're afraid of uh you know we're not just all of a sudden taking star wars and using it to shove stuff down your throat even Mm -hmm. though that i mean that whole idea is kind of flawed but you know speaking to that fear but that we that we're going to talk about Star Wars in a wider world, and it includes disability and prosthetics, and it includes queerness, and they're just part of the world. And I think she, did, yeah, your story really can be reiterates. Yeah, she, E.K. Johnson did a great job of just sort of integrating that into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely done very well. And like you said, it was like kind of a first step out the gate for Disney to see what can mm-hmm. we do, like what can we 
you know, quote, quote, get away with in this very pre-established world. Right. And I will say, like, kind of going back to how we felt about this book when it came out, I will say I was at first very not interested in it. And you and I think may have had different experiences of this. I, for the most part, did not have very positive feelings about much of the, um, the what is now referred to as the Legends canon, the extended universe books. I, I really liked the Heir of the Empire books, although reading them again, I thought the Thrawn parts were great, and I kind of skip most of the other parts now. Um, some of the other books I'd read and thought were pretty good, but were they always felt very, very male and very like written. And not that they were always written by men, but that the, the perspectives weren't the same. Um, and I remember being kind of really nervous and really surpri- happily surprised that here you had a book about a woman written by a woman. Uh, or I think E.K. Johnson is uh, identifies as a woman. She might be non-binary, in which case my apologies. Um, but what was your kind of experience with the Legends canon and how did that kind of influence like your first experience with Disney canon? Yeah, I mean, I had been kind of back and forth. Like I've read when I was younger, I had read a bunch of like kids books that were Star Wars, you know, things that are 100 pages and less and just like loved them, really enjoyed hearing more. There was some even about rebels uh, that kind of went into the lives of the clone or not clone, but the stormtrooper cadets that Ezra met. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. those books. I've just always loved all Star Wars things, so I'd say I had a very um, positive experience with it, and especially oh, later good. on when I started reading more books. I've never – I've read very little of, like, the older extended canon. I've mm-hmm. probably read most of the – not most of, but most of what I have read has probably come out after 2005, 2010. Right. And the stuff that's written post post prequels, post Clone Wars, and so it brings a lot of that idea into it. Yes, yes. Or I mean, one of my favorite series, the uh, Republic Commandos. Yeah, it's post prequels, pre Clone Wars, mm-hmm. and it actually sets up a lot of lore that they turn to and use for the clones in the yep. Clone Wars series and future writings. So that's very cool to see, even though it's not officially still part of the extended canon or yeah it's not part of the canon and now it's part of the legends there's still a ton of influences that we see that i really appreciate yeah no that's definitely important well that's great i think i think like looking back on it now especially i read more of the 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 republic commandos books which were also written by a woman like i think my impression of the legends canon is being very male dominated um there's some truth to it, but it's definitely not the entirety. I mean, it's it's like almost over a hundred books. I mean, it's a huge amount of work. Yeah. And so by dozens of authors. So yeah, there's 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 so many different perspectives out there. Absolutely. Well, and <coughs> I will just say on the Caden point, we're going to talk about it more in the members section. But the can do kind of just a and just the last thing I want to say about the Caden point, and we'll talk more about this in the Tales of the Jedi section. Uh more time (laughs) and just one last thing on caden and we'll talk more about this in the member section where we talk about tales of the jedi in tales of the jedi uh a lot of the same events happen including a fight against an inquisitor and then that's how she gets her crystals back and makes her lightsabers again but the the caden character is changed and there's no hint of queerness at all which i think is a uh, it, it, it's something that makes a lot of people feel a little bit kind of bittersweet remembering this book myself included and you know, I think it's just it's it's important to mentioning this book that, um, you know, clearly 
Star Wars is is drawing inspiration from many of these novels, and and in many ways the novels are still canon, but there are also some ways in which they're kind of retelling the stories a bit on screen, which I, I have some sympathy for, but I think when they change the character like that, it becomes definitely problematic. So we'll yeah. get more into that in in the member section. Um, but any any last things you want to say about this book? Um, not really. But yeah, I really did like. I liked. Um, we didn't get much of it, but we got a few scenes of the Grand Inquisitor. Yes. Where he specifically was very frustrated by the way the sixth brother was handling things. And he kind of wanted to be able to spearhead this hunting down Ahsoka thing himself. But uh-huh. he recognized as the Grand Inquisitor, there was more important things for him to be doing. And so yeah. when it went the way that it did and the sixth brother is killed and Ahsoka and all these villagers escape, the Grand Inquisitor kind of has this, I told you so, like, I knew this was going to be a bigger problem than you all were making it to be. And now... I have to deal with it. Yeah. And so I kind of just liked having that set up to see where, yeah, where we see him end up in Rebels, where he is much more focused on mm-hmm. hunting down and destroying Jedi, all Jedi, yeah. himself. Right. Because, yeah, because remember also, this book happens a year after Order 66. I mean, it's all still very new. And that includes the Inquisitors somewhat. I thought I was going to sneeze. I, I figured. <laughs> one last thing I'll say about that also. One of the things I think that doing Rebels caught some people's eyes was they were like, wait a minute. These Inquisitors, these are like dark side force users. These are like almost proto-Sith. How are like Ezra, who's barely used a lightsaber before, and Kanan, who was, you know, his training ended at eight. Like, how are they holding their own? Although clearly having real trouble. Ahsoka defeats the sixth brother quite easily so when easily. she doesn't have a lightsaber. <laughs> and and she mentions, she's like, yeah, if if this would have been like, you know, because she had fought against Darth Maul, you know, it, it, this would have been a lot harder. But clearly, I de- it, what he, she makes reference to how he's like, he, he's learning and he's got like, against like non-force users. He's great, but he's clearly not nowhere near the level of like a Darth Maul or, or yeah. anyone like that. He's not prepared uh, is, to fight people with his own abilities. He's only prepared to walk over people who have no way to defend themselves. Exactly. Exactly. Which I thought was a really nice way of kind of helping to like fill in some of that with Rebels. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention, and again, because this is an aside, Obi-Wan Kenobi is not really a character in the book. But he does appear briefly kind of as a like reminding us that this is why he's not the one to go chasing off when – people start to hear uh, rumors that a Jedi might be out there because he's so focused on Luke and protecting Luke. And also that him and Bail Organa are in contact as as he's doing this and Bail is helping to raise Leia. And so there's just this wonderful little moment of what's happening in his mind that was – you could take this out and the book – the plot of the book doesn't change anymore. But to me, this is kind of a really essential part of how I see Obi-Wan now. And he's talking about sort of what he had done when he came to this. This is what was going through his head as he's meditating on the whole situation. He'd gone to Shmi Skywalker's grave to apologize for losing her son. He had never met her, knew her only from Anakin's stories, but Qui-Gon had made her a promise and Obi-Wan hadn't been able to keep it. As he stood there looking at the stone, he felt an even deeper shame. Qui-Gon had left her there a slave and Obi-Wan had done everything in his power to prevent Anakin's return. It was only the love of a good man here on Tatooine that had saved her. 
the kind of love the Jedi were supposed to eschew, yet it had done something the Jedi could not. And there he, he's talking about the the man who Shmi marries, who buys her out of yeah. slavery. But that was the past. What he did now, he did for an uncertain future and for hope. He had trusted in the light side of the Force for his entire life. There was no call for him to stop now. He found the center of his meditation, the quiet place where there was no emotion, no resistance, no worldly bonds. He rooted his feet in that place and reached again. Still nothing. And I just, I, I, I love that so much for what it t- tells us about Obi Wan. What, what about you? What, what was your kind of your thoughts responding to that? I mean, I got a little teary eyed. Like it sucks. Yeah. For Obi Wan to like be looking back at these things and see like, okay, the Jedi have fallen. They clearly got a lot of things wrong. Like maybe caring for your mother and wanting to protect your family wasn't a bad thing. And like it kind of said, he's like ashamed and he feels guilty that he stopped Anakin from reconnecting with her and possibly saving her from this horrible death sooner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it really hits hard. And you know, this is not, I, I think you can read this into the movie, but it's more been explained by the creators later. But, but some of the, George Lucas and others have said that part of why it's called the duel of the fates, the fight between uh, Qui-Gon and Maul, is that Qui-Gon is one of the only Jedi who's able to kind of look at some of the Jedi rules with a little bit of a, you know, from a certain point of view, kind of a lens that he maybe could have been open to. Anakin shouldn't feel attachment, but he does. Can we help him resolve this and and free his mother instead of just saying, deny it, deny it, deny it? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan doesn't decide that Anakin should be raised. He doesn't decide that the council is wrong. He doesn't go through all of this um, realization the way Qui-Gon does. He just makes a promise to his dying master, mm-hmm. and and not that I think Obi Wan regrets trying to do it, but but I think it's just it really kind of highlights how helpless he felt, and that he felt he didn't want to do this because he felt like he couldn't, and then now he's feeling that he could. In the end, he couldn't, and you know we can argue that it's probably not as much Obi Wan's fault as he's giving himself credit for, but that yeah, he did make some mistakes, and mm-hmm. that the way that that guilt is crushing him, and he has no one to talk to about it. Is, is it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, mm-hmm. like, if you think about it, granted, this didn't come out later, but I think it's all part of the same understanding. In Kenobi, it's at the end of Kenobi, the, the TV show, is when Qui-Gon first makes contact with Obi-Wan, and that's 10 years later. Mm-hmm. So he spends 10 years in the desert alone. Yeah. Uh, last little thing I wanted to mention, and it's it's going to be relevant to some conversations that uh, Aaron and I have been having about um, other media that Ahsoka is coming out in uh, that, that we won't be talking about until the strikes are over. But it was just one more little moment. Uh, and this is at the – towards the end of the – well, no. It's in the middle of the book when Bale has sent his people to try and try and find this Jedi, but then she's disappeared. Bale walked into his office, turned on the lights, and nearly had a heart attack. Sitting at his desk, wearing a pressure suit with a helmet off, and resting on the table between them was Ahsoka Tano. Hello, Senator, she said pleasantly. I hear you wanted to talk. What? What's that? Because we've talked about the playfulness and kind of the sassiness of Ahsoka that doesn't always show up. What? What is this scene for you? <sighs> I don't know. It just... To me, it's just the best part of both of her dads, you know? <laughs> like, well, I guess Anakin's more of a brother, but he has that 
cocky, like, kind of confidence to do something like that. And Obi-Wan mm-hmm. has that. The sarcasm. The sarcasm, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just liked it. It was funny. It felt definitely like something she would do. And because yeah. the first time, isn't that that's the second time he's, she sneaks into his office, is it? Or is that yeah, the, the first, first time? time she just kind of like looks at some stuff, but this is the first time that he meets her. Yeah, so she has been sneakier about it before, but now that she kind of has her bearings and is more confident, mm-hmm. she's and she knows he knows who she is, right? So, yeah, she feels a little more comfortable to be a little cocky and kind of yeah. give him a scare for no reason other than <laughs> to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's wonderful, and I think it's just such a great. It shows such a great side of her that I think we don't often see in later stuff. That that um, it's just, it was just, it was a wonderful reminder to me of that. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's all I had on this book. Um, we're gonna have some more in the member section. Um, uh, again, talking about uh her her journey and and how it's told in Tales of the Jedi and how that is the similar or differs to this. Um, and of course, if you can become a member by just going to the website, all the information in the show notes, $5 a month. Although, like I said, we're going on a bit of a hiatus now. So if you want to hold off on that for a little while, totally understand. But as always, we love feedback. Let us know what you think. We will get to it in an upcoming episode. Uh, but for those who are new to this and hearing you for the first time, uh, Aaron, where can they find you? Yeah. So I'm at Lady Tano Creates, all one word. That's both on Instagram and TikTok. So on TikTok, I tend to post kind of some tutorials of what I'm working on. Uh, well, less of tutorials, but more like, let's see how this goes uh, mm-hmm. as far as cosplay. And then on Instagram, it's more typically pictures of my finished work and of me awesome. and cosplay, as well as some updates every once in a while. But yeah, if you're interested in any of that, swing by. I also repost a lot of memes on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So Nice. Yeah, it's great stuff. I've learned so much about cosplay by following you, and I love just the inventiveness of it. I know you recently showed me some pictures. I don't know if they're going up anywhere, but of your um, original character, um, <coughs> Twi'lek, uh, in, in like zombie Halloween makeup, and it was just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that'll be on my Instagram sooner than later. Yep. And actually, it, it reminds me, there was one question I wanted to ask you. Do you know anyone out there? I I, I kind of know in a lot of the cosplay community, there's a love of like the deep cut and like playing a character who no one might recognize. Do you know anyone who has been cosplaying or has ever done a cosplay of Ashla the mechanic? Oh yes, yes, That's I do. Awesome. I do. Uh-huh. Um, there's several people who have kind of like a mechanic Ahsoka, and it's it's between either doing the version of her that's on the front of the book. Which is uh-huh. not inherently over mechanical, but it is uh-huh. officially Ashla. And yeah. then people will do a take on her mechanic outfit from the seventh season of the Clone Wars, where she nice. meets the Martez sisters, which are basically the knockoff Larta sisters, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Worth noting, by the way, that the original ideas of season seven had been sketched out before this novel was written. And mm-hmm. my understanding is that E.K. Johnson knew those. But then, um, but like at some points when she's talking about that last battle on Mandalore, she's very vague about who she fought. Uh, it's because this is he's written before season seven yeah. comes out, and that the newest version of season seven, the kind of revised edition of season seven, the only one that was ever released, is in part based on this book. So yeah, it's great how those things come out. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that they had begun production on, even recorded and rendered for the original season seven of the clone wars before it was canceled and you can find a lot of it on um youtube actually 
I watched oh, awesome. back and it's it's funny. It's that style of animation where sometimes you can see through the characters and things aren't fully finished. Sometimes the eyes are fully 3D. Like it's just – it's kind of a that. mess. But it's funny to watch and there is one – episode where it's what eventually turned into the bad batch episodes um oh, nice. but anakin and obi-wan are at a campfire of sorts on a mission and they have a conversation about ahsoka and what happened since she left and anakin is really still angry and hurt about it and so that's some great content that's out there that's kind of it's not canon canon but it's kind of canon because like i nice. said they had all these stories written out and like you said, some of that turned into the Ahsoka book and some of that turned into the Dark Disciple book and other yeah. media out there with these. It's something that in my mind, I will never forgive Disney because I don't know if it's the true fact of what happened. But mm-hmm. my understanding is that Disney bought Lucasfilm and kind of just canceled everything that they were currently making in order to remake things as Disney shows. And we lost what should have been that seventh season of The Clone Wars. And they're – oh, my God. It just makes me so mad. There's so much that we lost. But I do also love the season we got. Yeah. I mean, it's so weird talking about it because I do think that season seven of The Clone Wars is maybe the best Star Wars media that I've ever seen on screen. It is incredible. But, but yeah, but also knowing that, like, it it – you know, transitions are always rough, but I do think it could have been handled a lot better for sure. And mm-hmm. and we will talk about uh, how something on the page was translated into the screen in Tales of the Jedi in just a moment for our members. For everybody else, thank you so much. We have spoken. Spoken. 